Welcome to the Monetary Mixtape with Will Hoffman, founder of Hoffman Wealth Management. In this podcast, we help fellow Gen Xers simplify complex wealth issues that are important to Gen X. We do this by cutting out the mundane material and using a refreshing approach to finances in a way this skipped generation appreciates. Join us for this ride where we explore financial planning and wealth management as Will Hoffman draws from almost 20 years of experience and brings to you qualified guests to help be your latchkey to tricky monetary affairs. Hello and welcome to Monetary Mixtape with your host, Will Hoffman, where we talk about the ever forgotten Generation X. I'm Wendy McConnell. Hi, Will. How are you? I'm great. How are you today, Wendy? Oh, well, we're melting here, but uh, we're surviving. Dog days of summer are upon us, right? It's hot, it's humid, it's sticky, but... This is what we've all waited for. Right. Right. (laughs) The... the, uh, Months of of darkness and cold and yep. wind lead to this for so nobody complain. I don't want to hear about it. it's it's so hot. Oh my exactly. goodness. Because exactly. in six months we're gonna be complaining about how cold it is. And you know what? I'm in air conditioning. I am good to go. Yeah. Well, I just started training for the New York City Marathon, and that is not an easy task at, mm-hmm. at the you have to be up and out early and it's hot. Yeah. Well, we will suffer through. Um, so we have a guest today. Yes. Yes. We have a, a guest and somebody that I've been following for a while. We're part of the same um, LinkedIn group, the Gen X Nation, which is a pretty cool LinkedIn group that if uh, if you are listening and not a part of it and, and a part of Gen X, check it out. It, it, it's a lot of fun you know, professional content mixed with pop culture, which is exactly what what we try to do here is, is you know, mix information with some of the fun stuff from our generation. Um, but Michelle Walter is joining us today. She's a certified professional coach and mindfulness meditation teacher who helps 40 and 50 year old Gen Xers blaze a new path in life so they can remember who they are, connect to what matters and find where they want to go next. And and the rest of her uh, bio and resume is very, very impressive, but we're going to let her talk about that uh, here now. So welcome to the Monetary Mixtape, Michelle. Thank you. It's really an honor that you reached out and I'm so glad we could make this happen. And I've enjoyed listening to your podcast and getting to follow you on LinkedIn too. Thank you. Yeah. We, um, a lot of the stuff that Michelle discusses, it's, it's, it's interesting how money collides with a lot of the things that, that we're going to talk about today. And it may not be immediately obvious, um, but you know, a lot of the things that Michelle discusses, it, it seems as though Gen X has a trouble with because of the money, because of of you know, us needing to earn, us wanting to be, you know, successful and driven and and members of our our companies and our community. So it it's um it's going to be a fun, interesting, insightful episode and discussion. So uh, you know, I encourage you to um, pay attention, take some notes, and Michelle is going to uh, grace us with a free gift at the end for all of our listeners to um you know to to continue this discussion uh, in their own lives. So Michelle, tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, um, and what brought you to to where you are today. Oh yeah. What brought me? Yeah, that's always an interesting question. <laughs> <laughs> so I'll give the nutshell version of it. I live now in Colorado, just north of Denver, with my dog Winnie. 
And I grew up in Nebraska, spent most of my life in a trailer down by the river. So I was like the the girl version of the Chris Farley character from Saturday Night Live, like in a van down by the river. (laughs) (laughs) But I was in the trailer down by the river and spent a lot of time, you know, as a free-spirited Gen Xer playing down by the river all by myself, completely unsupervised, playing under the bridge, you know, for hours at a time that would not fly today. So just really, I think from the get-go, always had a, a free spirit and a value of freedom that I didn't even realize. And my parents, my mom and dad were both um, very working class, blue collar, um, and we were very privileged too. I mean, I never wanted for anything. My parents made sure that I got whatever I wanted and needed. And we eventually moved to another like stationary house instead of the trailer house. Uh, out in the country, also in rural Nebraska, across from a cornfield. And in fact, I used to have slumber parties and we'd watch Children of the Corn. And then uh-huh. I'd dare people to go play in the cornfield with me. <laughs> uh-uh, no way. <laughs> Nobody ever took me up on it. So, um, but yeah, I was the first person in my college, in my family to go to college and then to law school. And all along the way, I just, feel like I kind of kept falling into my life, didn't know what I wanted to do after high school. So I just go to college and psych major sounds good, not sure what else to do. And then got toward the end of college and thought, I don't know what I can do with a psych major. So I guess maybe law school, everything just felt sort of uh, not very intentional, I think. And so went to law school and had a couple of professors there. I went to Creighton undergrad and law school, had a couple of professors at Creighton Law School, which uh, who had both been out in DC, they'd both been attorneys out there. I had a little bit of interest in environmental law from some classes I took. And so they recommended that I go to DC and do a master's program in environmental law at George Washington University. So I did that, which was a big move from Nebraska to DC. I had never traveled very much. And so DC was a big culture shock in a lot of ways and a lot of good ways. And so I went to the master's program, ended up interning in the environment and natural resources division at the department of justice, and then got to know the folks there and ended up getting a job there. And for folks who don't know the legal world, the department of justice is a pretty big deal if you want to be a litigator. And I say that not to toot my own horn, but to say that from somebody who came from rural Nebraska, who didn't have Ivy League creds. I didn't clerk for a federal judge or a Supreme Court judge. I wasn't on law review. I had technically no business being at the Department of Justice. <laughs> Girl, and you toot your horn, okay? Yeah, right. Toot it, please. <laughs> and I remember during an interview, just to inspire people to like never let somebody tell you what you can't do or that you don't belong, during an interview, I had a very high up woman manager, actually a political appointee, look me in the eye and say, you know, we only hire people from Ivy League schools and who've clerked and are in law review. So why do you think you belong? And I remember I looked back at her and I said, because I know I can do this work. And I think it'd be a huge mistake if you didn't hire me and the people here really like me. And so end of, yeah, end of that. And so I ended up working there for 20 years. I worked a few years at a law firm kind of in the middle of that DOJ career, but did environmental litigation for 20 plus years. And then Uh, Toward the tail end of that, wanted to move to Colorado, and we had a field office in Denver, and so I made that move happen. 
And all the while doing that, I'd also been doing some Ironman triathlons. And so I came out and spent some time, did Ironman Boulder before I moved, made sure I liked Colorado and decided, yeah, this is where I want to be. Transferred to our Denver field office and have been here since 2016. And then uh, in 2012, backing up a little bit, my mom had passed away suddenly from a heart attack at the age of 58 in her office working by herself just past midnight which was a huge trauma for me, one that sure. I'm still healing from and still processing. And because of that, I started questioning a lot of things in my life as people will tend to do. And so after I moved to Colorado and I was getting into my late forties, I really started spiraling and experiencing some significant depression and anxiety because I felt like being a lawyer was not where I was meant to be. It really wasn't my purpose, never felt like, again, I intentionally chose it. I just kind of fell into that whole path. Sure. Um, and it got to the point where I would go to bed at night and just pray that I wouldn't wake up in the morning. Like I, I mm-hmm. never got to the point where I knew that I would do anything to harm myself. And I just didn't, I didn't want to go on. And through some synchronistic events, I met some folks who were coaches, uh, another guy who was doing a mindfulness meditation training. And long story short, I ended up enrolling in a two-year mindfulness meditation certification program through Sounds True and a coaching program with the Institute for Professional Excellence in Coaching. Got my certifications and then decided, I think probably in 2019, that I was going to get my 20 years in at the federal government and quit my job. And so I put out laid out a big calendar, like a year and a half long calendar with sticky notes everywhere with the plan to do that. And in June, 2021, I quit my government job and am now focusing on my business full time. Wow. That's a, uh, an impressive resume and and an impressive path that I want to hear more about, especially, um, you know, help our listeners understand when you say mindfulness, mindfulness meditation, um, what do you mean by that? Mm-hmm. I'm glad you asked that because it's such a misunderstood phrase because it gets thrown around. You hear people all the time saying, I want to be more mindful. And the best explanation that I want to pass on that I learned from my teachers, Tara Brock and Jack Cornfield, and from the Asian lineages that these practices come from, is that we can think about mindfulness as having two wings like a bird, and you need both of those in order to fly. And the first wing is awareness. So that's paying attention to the present moment. And you pay attention in a particular way. And that's the second wing, which is with compassion or non-judgment. So you can be paying attention to a moment and really judging it and thinking, this just sucks. This is awful. I want this to go away. I wish this would change. You're paying attention, but you're not really practicing mindfulness. You're not really flying. So we need to bring in that second wing of compassion or non-judgment and try and open up as much as we can to give more space to whatever is in the moment. And that's hard because we're human beings. We have you know, up to 60,000 thoughts a day. So we're not talking about trying to stop your thoughts, which is a common myth about mindfulness. Like we're going to stop our thoughts. Right. If you stop your thoughts, you're probably not here anymore, right? right. So we're talking about creating space around 
the experience and the the present moment. So really focusing on those two wings. And the beautiful thing about it is that you can practice that formally, you know, in a, a 10, 20, 15 minute meditation in the mornings. And when you practice, just like training, you are training your muscle of attention, awareness, non-judgment, so that informally you can bring mindfulness into the rest of your day in the little moments, in traffic okay. and talking to people. And that way, mindfulness becomes a way of life, which is what I really love about it. Yeah. Well, when I was just on Route 95 from Florida to back to Pennsylvania, and a lot of folks seem as though they have stopped their thoughts. Yeah. Especially when, yeah. when they're behind them. So I understand there. And and Wendy, you look like you had a question for for Michelle. I am I definitely do from both a money standpoint, a training standpoint, a life standpoint, but go ahead. I just wanted to clarify. So would you say that mindfulness is being in the present moment with gratitude? I think that gratitude can be a gateway to that you know, to being able to practice that second wing also of compassion and non-judgment. Because when we can open up to what we are grateful for, it can start to plant a seed that kind of grows in us to recognize when I remove my judgment about a situation, I can actually be grateful for a lot which gets really into the nitty gritty of these practices, which is when you're going through something really challenging, take, for example, the death of my mom, which at that time I did not have mindfulness practices to support me. And now when an anniversary comes up or there's some memory I have of her, that's a challenging situation. It's a painful situation. And when I can try not to judge it, just let it be what it is and have compassion for myself in that moment, I can open up a little bit to gratitude and realize, honestly, if my mom was still here, I don't know that I'd be on the path that I'm on right now. And so while I'm not grateful that she's gone, I am grateful for how it allowed me to grow. Gotcha. So before we dive into a specific Gen X or a specific financial or money portion of this conversation. I do want to ask, and we have we have a few things in common. You're an, an Ironman um, athlete, and, and you've completed how many Ironman? Three. Three triathlons. It's been a while. Yeah, my last one was were, in 2015. Were you doing any of this mindfulness, med mindfulness meditation while you were training or competing in those? No, and I okay. so wish it had been. <laughs> well, so because I want to ask how when you're in, especially in the race day, it sucks. It hurts. How do you take that situation, become more mindful? And and I'm not asking you to, you know, give anything away here, but but how do you do that and then remove the judgment from that and say, okay, mm -hmm. I'm here, I'm in it. It sucks. How do I perform better? Yeah, I love that question. And I'm going to, I want to give it all away. That's what I'm here to do. Like, <laughs> I'm just a conduit for this information. So, I want to pass along an equation that is, uh, has been used by Buddhist monks, and Young. So, listeners, take note. This is the most powerful equation I've ever heard. If I ever get a tattoo, it's going to be this. And the equation is suffering 
equals pain times resistance. So I'll say that again, suffering equals pain times resistance. And okay. what that means is we often hear that, you know, life is suffering. It's actually not quite true, at least in my view. What's true is that life is and has pain. We cannot escape that. What we can start to do is change our relationship to that pain so that we suffer less. So let's okay. take running as an example, and then we can extrapolate that to more mental and emotional areas too. And this is so timely because as we talked the other day, I just started learning how to run again a few months ago. So I was really excited. I did a three and a half mile run today. So, well, And I don't want to minimize what, what folks are going through in other capacities. You know, folks right. are dealing with so much more than my legs being tired at mile 20, but that, you know, knowing that that was a common thread that we have, yeah. I, I wanted to dive into that a little bit more. And, and that's okay because this is where mindfulness becomes a way of life. So it doesn't matter in my view, what level your pain is at. If you're experiencing a level one pain or a level 10 pain, whether you're running or somebody dies, right? Pain is pain. So we're not minimizing anybody's pain. We want to start to lessen our own suffering in the midst of that pain. So for example, with running, just the other day, I noticed my hips started getting tight. And as soon as you notice a pain in your body cropping up, what do you do? Your whole body starts to kind of brace. Sure. Your thoughts start to spiral. Oh my God, my IT band is going to flare up because my hip's getting tight. I'm, it's going to be painful. I'm not going to be able to run. You start to just go into the spiral. That is all resistance. Coming back to that equation, we're resisting the pain in that moment. We want to lessen our resistance to that pain, in this case, physical pain. It doesn't mean that we agree with the pain or that we like it. That's very important to remember. Easing the resistance does not mean, hey, this pain is awesome. It's, we're not silver lining it. We're trying to release our resistance to it so that we suffer less. So in that moment, as soon as I noticed my hips getting tight, I, I shook out my body. I started taking some deep inhales and exhales, trying to relax my body and soften around that pain. It didn't make the pain go away. That's not the point. Right. But what it did is it eased the rest of my resistance to that pain so that I could find more space and run a little bit more freely. And by the end of the run, the pain was still there, but it hadn't debilitated me. Does that make sense? Yes. Yeah. So you can take that, that little example, so to speak, which is so powerful into the rest of your life. So if you're resisting, talk about money, how much money you don't have. If you're resisting a relationship breakup, if you're resisting getting fired, if you're resisting not being as successful as you want to be, whatever it might be, you are exacerbating your suffering to that painful event. So with mindfulness, we can invite ourselves to learn again how to become aware that we're resisting, become aware of the pain, the event that's happening, and bring in compassion like I did during that run, shake it off, take some deep breaths, and non-judgment and just see it as it's pain. It is temporary because everything is temporary. Right. So we're not silver lining our way out of it, but we're trying to create space around it just to ease our suffering even a little bit. And and let yourself off the hook. Give yourself a break. I mean, take like you said, yeah, take it easy on yourself. Yeah, don't beat yourself up. Right. Yeah. 
Absolutely, which Gen Xers are great at. We beat the crap out of ourselves. Well, that, which is a great segue to my my next question. Why Gen X? Why why did you pick Gen X to to focus your business on? Um, you know, what did you see that Gen X needs that that wasn't being met? Yeah. <clears throat> I can only teach and coach from my own experience. And so as a Gen Xer and somebody who loved growing up in the 70s and 80s, and I've always loved a lot of Gen X pop culture, while I'm not somebody who loves a lot of labels, I think it's helpful to look at the time periods that we grew up in as part of our formative childhood years. And so that's why I think the Gen X label can be a helpful label to apply in recognizing that. And so as somebody who got into her late mid to late 40s and really started to burn out, be really depressed and lost and just felt trapped. I felt trapped in my stable federal government job because I couldn't leave it. How else am I going to pay my bills and pay my debt? And where am I going to get health insurance? Right? Right. And I had followed that path so unintentionally, you know, just kind of checking the boxes of what I thought I was supposed to do and what societal expectations were not so much my family. They didn't really have huge expectations. They would have been happy no matter what I did, but just that competitive nature and competition can be good. It can be healthy, but there's a lot of unhealthy competition. And all of that combined got me to where I was when I was literally sitting in my closet crying, wishing I wouldn't wake up the next morning. And so when I finally found my way out of it, and I, I shouldn't even say out of it, through it, I'm still navigating through it, right. I realized I can't be the only one. And what I've learned is that that age of 40s and 50s, which is where all Gen Xers now are in our 40s and 50s, which whether you want to call it midlife or not, that label isn't always helpful. That tends to be this the phase in life when we start having these kind of existential questions thinking I've worked decades and what do I have to show for it? My family hates me. Yeah, I have a retirement account, but you know, I don't ever take vacations or maybe I'm divorced or whatever it is. We start asking, what am I really doing here? How did I even get here? And what in the hell am I going to do from here on out? <laughs> you know, I don't know how to do anything different. Sure. And so I thought my experience has to be shared by others. And that's what really motivated me to have that focus. Okay. And you said a phrase there. I was I was hesitant to to liken this to a midlife crisis, you know, because that's when we turn to when we look at our bank accounts, we look at our our four hundred one k and IRA statements, we look at our our net worth and and what we've accumulated, and say, okay, how can I use this to solve that? And I'm having these struggles, whether I'm not happy with my career, not happy with my house, I'm not happy with my car, I'm not happy with where I am. I thought I'd be here and I'm here. And and please correct me if I'm wrong. That's where happiness comes from is is meeting expectations. You know, you thought you were going to be here and you're not, you're not happy. You thought your marathon time was going to be this and it was this. Meanwhile, you just did something that only 1% of our population has ever done, but you're not happy. Um, so you hit that midlife era, let's call it, borrow a little something from Taylor Swift. You hit that midlife era. Don't make, don't laugh at me, Wendy. That was <laughs> I love that you did that. <laughs> um, 
And that's when to soothe that we, we, the sports car arrives in our driveway. We upgrade our house. We purchase the second home. And, um, you know, unfortunately, sometimes we do that and put the rest of our financial lives in jeopardy because we're trying to solve for a pain that, that I mean, sports car is nice. And I like cars. I'm a car guy, but it's not going to soothe it. It's not going to solve that um, that that pain. And what will, I guess, let's ask Michelle, what, what will solve that pain? What does, what's the process like to get through that era? And am I wrong in calling it a midlife crisis? Or is that what sort of the midlife crisis evolves from? Hey, sorry for the interruption. I know you're listening to the Monetary Mixtape because you want to learn about financial planning and wealth management. If you have any questions at the end, please head over to www.hoffmanwealth.com or look in the show notes to schedule a call with us. I think you can call it whatever feels comfortable for you. Okay. I like to call it a midlife awakening to the extent we're going to use midlife at all. And some people feel very triggered by the term midlife because people don't like to think, wait, I'm halfway done with my life. Yeah, I'm not calling it. Yeah, whatever (laughs) floats your boat. Again, I'm just getting started is the way I like to look at that. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So let's just call this point that we're in a call to awakening, really. Because we have spent the first part of our lives trying to meet all of these external expectations. Like I was talking about my life and being... Even when we feel intentional, we're still following oftentimes external expectations from society, culture, family, friends, school, advertising, you name it. We are inundated and socialized into believing what we, quote, should go after in life, right? Would you even classify us, our expectations of ourselves? Um, is that internal or is that, is that outside? You know, uh, to me, innately, I would think it means internal, but where do those expectations come from? That was going to be my question to you. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I expect this for myself, but is that because that's what my friends expect from from me? Right. Exactly. And being really curious about two things. First of all, where does that expectation come from? Where's that story come from that I think I should make X amount of dollars, or I should be a lawyer, or I should get married and have two kids. Like Even when you want those for yourself, and we'll talk about this in a moment here with respect to values. When you want that for yourself, getting really clean and clear on the source of that desire. You know, why do I want that? And is it purely because it's something I want that feels good to me? Or is it something that I feel like I quote should do? And I'll explain the difference with that in just a moment. The second thing is to be curious about that word expectation. My best friend says a quote to me, and I don't. I wish I could credit who said this, so I apologize that I can't. But expectations are the death of serenity. So when we're constantly trying, not that's not to say don't have goals, right? And I'll talk about that too. There's a, a different way we can come about our tangible goals, but when we're constantly expecting, 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 and falling short, that's that doesn't allow us room for right. happiness. Yeah. So the, the, the quote solve, and I want to be careful even using that because I see this as a lifelong practice. Everything that I teach and do is all a practice. So there's right. no end point where it's all healing, all transformation. And what I've found is that because we've spent the first part of our li- lives kind of 
on autopilot, pretty unconscious, trying to meet all of these external expectations, is that we haven't ever really been given permission to tune into what is deeply important to us. What really lights a fire inside of me? And, and sometimes we get flickers of that. And sometimes there are people who follow that and we do that. So I'm talking about those of us who have spent most of our life kind of disconnected from what is consciously really important to us. So let's go back to uh, my value of freedom, for example. When I said I played by the river a lot as a little kid, like that freedom felt so light and expansive and just energized, you know, looking back on that when I was little. I lost that. Like a lot of people lose their sense of values as we get older and trying to meet these expectations. We kind of put our own values, our own conscious values on the back burner. And so when we get to our 40s and 50s, it makes sense in that stage of life that we're now like, okay, wait, what, how do I figure out what's important to me? How do I really do that? Because you've never been taught. And so that's where the, the values work comes into play that I do. And I call it inner compass work because I my company's life from the summit. I live in Colorado. I love everything hiking related. So let's talk about developing your own internal compass, right? Right. And your core values are like a North Star. They're what give you direction and keep you on track. I like to recommend that folks get really clear on three to five core values, because otherwise, if you have 10, it gets a little unwieldy and unfocused. So the resource that you mentioned, uh, we'll take folks through this too a little bit, but when you can get really clear on your three to five core values, then you know what is deeply important to you and anything else can sort of start to move to the sidelines a little bit. And so for me, for example, I did this work a few years ago before I even became a coach. I got really clear on my five core values, which are compassion, honesty, freedom, vulnerability, and um, I just forgot my fifth one. It'll come to me. <laughs> It'll come back to me. <laughs> but getting really clear on those is what allowed me to be able to quit my job and start my own business. And so once you get clear on what your core values are, then you want to start to understand what they mean to you. Like give them some color, give them some depth. What does freedom, for example, look like for me? What it, when do I feel like I am most free? What kinds of things am I doing? What my life look like? So kind of give it some definition. Mm -hmm. And then the next step is to get a feeling for what, I'll just use my value of freedom, for example, what freedom feels like in your body. And this is where mindfulness can come in, practicing to tune into your body, the emotions, the feelings, the physical sensations that are there when I'm feeling that value of freedom. As I said, I feel kind of light and expansive. Maybe my heart feels fluttery. I just feel at peace and calm. And the reason that's so important is that we're trying to get out of our head and into our body because we've used our head for the first part of our lives to check the boxes, meet the expectations, get where we are, right? Right. We want to be able to come into our body to really guide us because your wisdom lives in your body. And so when you can start getting in touch with what does that value feel like for me when I'm living it and noticing those little moments, I have guided meditation that takes people through this, of noticing when you feel that value, then just like mindfulness, you can practice that throughout the day 
and actually rewire your body from a neuroscience standpoint to get more used to feeling that and therefore wanting more of it. So it becomes like that magnet in the compass. You kind of get drawn to wanting more things with that value. So that's kind of the big the big first step is finding your core values, understanding what they mean and knowing like what does that feel like for me in my body when I'm honoring that core value. Wow. Now, I want to want to add a disclosure here. Michelle, we've never talked about my business, my process when it comes to working with clients, right? Okay. Everything you just said validated the first step of our financial planning process because we want to get to, it's great to have a lot of money. I think all of us would agree to that. Um, the resources and the things we could do with an infinite amount of resources. I'm sure we all have sat there and daydreamed about, man, if I had all this money, I could do this, that, or, or whatever. But what's important to us when we work with our clients is how do your values tie into your money? Whether it's freedom, which is a big, big, big part of our money. We we don't feel freed from that W-2 because we have to we have to earn to pay bills. We have to earn to be able to fund our retirement. We have to earn to be able to have benefits to take care of our family. And that freedom is a giant value that emerges in our financial planning practice because that's what folks want to fund. They don't want to sit in traffic and go to their nine to five or, you know, over the last few four or five years, they don't want to walk to their home office or their dining room to go to their nine to five. They want to be able to work and do what they want, where they want, when they want. And that freedom is something that I think emerges in this 40s to 50s age range. I'm sick of it. I'm tired of it. I want to tell my boss to take this job and shove it. How do I do that? Have I earned enough? Have I accumulated enough? Have I saved enough? By the way, the next step is I just want to own a coffee shop on a trail and relax. Maybe you're getting a glimpse into Will's retirement. Yeah. I have a friend who did that, by the way. (laughs) But you you understand it's those values are important. Legacy is another value that becomes important. I would like to provide for my family. I would like to provide for a charity. I would like to provide for my alma mater, you know, whatever the legacy is, you know, there's, there's all these values that are at least historically in our profession have been underpinned because it wasn't about the value. It was about the return. It was about the performance of my money. It was about what I owned. It was about being able to brag to my buddies on the golf course, hey, I picked this investment at the right time and sold it at the right time and you didn't, you know, and and maybe that's a value is being able to, you know, to to boast about investment decisions. But that's what our first step is, is to get to the root of what the the values are that we are trying to save and invest and solve for. And you know, unfortunately, we have to move the conversation sometimes from what should I invest in to why should you invest this? Because if those values are out of line, the performance is irrelevant. Mm-hmm. The yeah. The type of an account is irrelevant. What you own and why becomes irrelevant because 
we don't know why we're saving or investing. And and we lose sight of that. We make then we maybe make poor financial decisions. Our goals and our values don't become or stay the center point as to what we're doing. And um, you know, we end up having to stay tied to that W-2 because we've made bad financial decisions because our values have, have, am I right in assuming that? I mean, you're working with folks on this every day while we're working with them on their money, but do you see that as a a commonality? Yeah. And I, two things, I love that you have done that and didn't even maybe fully realize how powerful what you're doing is. No, because the training we get as professionals when we're young and first starting is you're going to do this so you can sell something. You're going to do this so you can, you know, because, you know, maybe part of Wall Street's and, and the financial um, industry's checkered past is we were all money hungry, you know, maybe driven, but money hungry, driven for the wrong reasons. Right. Um, right. Professionals. Yeah. And it's all it's done is make our job tougher in the future because you're just trying to sell me an investment. You're just trying to sell me a product or something. And for the most part, that's not the case. It is, we want to help you fund these values. We don't, you know, because it breaks my heart to hear that people are lying in bed, hoping they don't wake up. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, that's, that's a heartbreaking thing for anybody to have to go through. And if we can be the um the, the bucket of cold water that gets dumped over you from a financial standpoint and helps you clarify that from a money standpoint they're not lying in bed cuz that i mean that's that's no way to exist yeah yeah i one thing i'm picking up on in what you were saying and this ties into the the second thing i was going to say about that is that there's an even deeper level to that to this values work, because what I heard you say a couple of times, sort of uh, anticipating what some clients may say, is that I have to, I have to save for retirement. I have to fund the kids' college. I have to, have to, have to. We want to invite ourselves to start to notice when we are saying, "I have to do this. I should do this. I need to do this." What that is an indicator of is that we are honoring something or trying to move towards something from a fear-based place. And that's a fear-based value. Mm -hmm. So let's take the example of somebody just wanting to save for retirement, for example, and thinking they maybe need $5 million in their account to be able to retire. Like I have to save $5 million because I have to have the vacation home. I got to have the boat. I got, you know, all the things. If they're saying I have to, I have to, I have to, I want to get really curious about why do you think you have to? What's the story? What's the messaging around that that is something that you should do? Saving for retirement at all, let alone saving $5 million, let alone getting the retirement house, like all of those things. Because when you're coming from a fear-based place trying to honor values, that is not going to be a sustainable way to go toward your goal. You're going to end up basically burning a lot of energy because that's really heavy energy when we're in a fear, fear, when our nervous systems are coming from a place of fear. We're not meant to live like that 24-7. And yet we our baseline of fear right now is very high because a lot of people are living from fear. And it's exhausting. People are burning out. They're getting depressed, anxious, all of that. Mm-hmm. So we want to instead bring in conscious-based values. 
And those are ones where we say, I want to, I get to, I'd love to, because conscious-based values feel lighter, more expansive. They're a more sustainable form of energy. Coming back to the running example, it's like running in zone two, uh, that that aerobic state, which you can run in forever because it's fat burning versus the fear-based, which is running in anaerobic, which is running off of your top sugar stores when you're going to bonk pretty soon. Okay. So we want to have people saving for retirement, uh, paying for kids' college, even going to work to make a dollar from a conscious-based values-driven place. So how do we do that? The example I wanted to give is actually when I was still working at DOJ and knew that I wanted to put in about another year and a half so that I could start up my business full-time. And there were a lot of times during that year and a half when when I wanted to say, take this job and shove it. You know, you alluded <laughs> to that earlier, Will. And it got really hard on some days for me to stay in a career that I felt like I wasn't fulfilling my purpose. And so how did I do that for a year and a half without beating myself up, running myself down, being in that fear-based place that we talked about that isn't sustainable? And I actually had a coach work with me to get me really clear on what my core values were. So on those days when it felt unbearable to argue with another opposing counsel over a motion for extension, I could tap into what it felt like to honor those core values. And in particular, my value of freedom, because I knew that I wanted to stay another year and a half so that I could have some annual leave saved up, that I could cash out and use that for some funding of the business so that I could vest my pension at 20 years so that someday when I'm 65, I'll get that pension. And that allowed me to tap into a conscious-based value of freedom as opposed to staying for another year and a half from a fear-based value of, I don't know how I'm going to pay my bills. I've got to stay here because I I need the money. So had I not done that core values work, who knows how things might have ended up. So that's the invitation for people. So if you take somebody who is miserable in their job every day, and they're saying things like, I got to get up. I got to do this job so I can pay the bills. I have to stay here because this is how we keep a roof over our head. Those circumstances feel very palpable and real. And so we're not trying to undermine those circumstances. What I want to do is have people be able to come from a more empowered, conscious place in the midst of those circumstances so that they can navigate those circumstances a little bit better. So in that situation where someone is miserable at their job and they feel like they have to stay to pay the bills, inviting in what is a conscious-based value that I can also choose to honor here. And remember, coming back to that equation that I shared of suffering equals pain times resistance, we want to acknowledge the pain of that situation of going to a job day in, day out that you hate just so that you can pay the bills. And we want to ease the resistance to that. So let it suck. That's okay. And maybe you have a conscious base value of it feels really good to me to provide safety for my family. Like there's a value of financial safety that feels expansive, feels lighter. So if I can think about I'm honoring that value and at the same time, it still sucks and I know I have to pay the bills, that can at least allow us to navigate that situation with a bit more ease and less resistance so that we suffer less. So that's the power of knowing 
how to tap into more conscious-based values. Gotcha. So through your conversations, and maybe this is a question I should be able to answer. When, when do you notice folks feel financially secure to move away from that job? to make that decision what what's what's the um the trigger is it a dollar amount is it an income amount it, it, what what's what do they find financially that can replace that i think that's a very individual and complicated okay. answer depending on each person's circumstances right right because you have people who are making minimum wage and are very at peace and happy and feel purposeful. Mm -hmm. You have people who are making seven, eight figures who are absolutely miserable and don't right. know what their purpose is. So I wanna actually maybe remove us from the expectation, again, coming back to the expectations of what's the number. And again, we have to recognize the reality of our own circumstances. So I never advocate for somebody to say, just like screw your job and leave. If you have thousands of dollars in student loan debt and a mortgage and kids to put through school and all of that. If we can, again, come to a place where we are in touch with the reason we're doing this, our why, that's what the core values are, is okay. your why. Why I am doing this from a place that's important to me, not because other people or society or my family or even my own internal stories tell me that I should. But why can I stay or why can I leave from a place that's important to me? And that can be scary. I mean, sure. people tell me all the time, oh, how's retirement? I'm like, I didn't retire. I am not collecting <laughs> retirement money. I took a huge leap that is a gigantic roller coaster, as I'm sure you can appreciate being an entrepreneur yeah. and having your own business. There is no stability, no security whatsoever. <laughs> so now, what's, every what's month, the, my favorite picture of entrepreneurship is the iceberg. And it's the tiny tip of the iceberg that's above that says success and then everything underneath that is sleepless nights and yeah. blood, sweat, and tears and, um, you know, self-consciousness, um, or, or lack of, of, uh, of self-confidence and, and, you know, that Richter scale that we experience on a day-to-day -day basis that, that just, yep. that every time I see that image or shared as a meme or something that, that speaks to me. Yeah. Yeah. So I think. It's not so much the number. I think it gets to the point where you have to ask yourself, what am I not willing to tolerate in my life anymore? Because okay. living from those fear-based values, trying to live up to those expectations takes a toll. And then you're somebody, not to be too dramatic about it, but then you're somebody like my mom who worked, 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 worked herself to the bone and literally worked herself to death because she didn't take care of herself enough because yeah. she was so busy taking care of everybody else, right? So you have to want to be really honest and say, what am I no longer willing to tolerate and believe that there is something I truly believe that everybody is meant to be doing here. And the world is a better place when we are each living into our core base values, therefore living into what our purpose is. And that purpose can change throughout life. But if you are suffering because you have a painful situation, 
that you just hate and that resistance is there exacerbating that pain, you have to ask yourself, when is enough enough? When can I start to at least navigate the situation with a bit more ease for myself okay. from a more conscious place? Now, we mentioned at the beginning, you have a a gift or something for our listeners. Is it is that something that's going to help with this process? Absolutely. This can is you a tell great us a bit start. more about that. Yeah, it's called your inner compass guidebook, and it takes you through a three step framework. We've pretty much talked about the first step of that, which is figuring out your core based values. The second step is figuring out what I call your non core values, which are the path, the expectations that you've been following all of your life that aren't yours that you've just adopted and maybe didn't even realize it, just kind of followed on autopilot. Because we want to learn how to recognize those non-core values that we've been unconsciously following so that we can start to open our awareness to where we want to bring in our own conscious-based values. So that's the second step is seeing where have I been following some non-core values and let's free up the energy from following those and put that toward following my own core values. And then the third step is with everything I do, always encouraging folks to just take one tiny step. We can get so overwhelmed, and especially I think a lot of Gen Xers, we're such gunners, right? We just want right. to go big or go home. <laughs> if we can trust that all we ever need to do is take the next step in front of us. We don't have to go from A to Z. We don't even have to go from A to B. We can go to from A to A.1 if we need to. And taking that next step and knowing what that next step is also requires getting really clear on who you want to be. And this is based on a lot of work by James Clear from the book Atomic Habits, where he talks about developing your identity and yeah. who you want to be. What's so the other the part? Guy, one one percent a day or something, right? You just get better by one percent. Yeah, it's he's all about tiny steps too. Yeah. Like doing yeah. So that's all we're ever talking about. One percent if you can, even half a percent on some days. So what the guidebook takes you through is developing an identity statement, both for your core values and your non-core values, that is a flexible identity. So let's take a core value of freedom, for example. If you want to spend more time and energy devoting yourself to your value of freedom, you don't say something like, I'm somebody who takes a vacation every month, or I'm somebody who takes a day off every week. That's more of a rigid identity. We want to open ourselves up to learning and growth. And so you would develop a flexible identity statement that says something along the lines of, I'm someone who is learning to take more time off, or I'm someone who is learning to go easier, be more in the flow. And the beauty of that is that it allows for us to be humans and have missteps. So take the example of, of running. That might be easier when I said I was learning how to run again. That's my flexible identity because there are days when maybe I don't run or like today I only had time to run 20 minutes instead of 40 minutes. That still allows me to be someone who's learning how to be a runner again. If I said I'm somebody who runs 40 minutes every day and then I only get out and run 20 minutes, then I feel like a failure. Then I haven't met my expectation, as you talked about before, and that just is demoralizing and it takes the wind out of our sails. So give yourself some flexibility and the guidebook kind of walks you how to do that. And once you have that flexible identity, then you just say, okay, what's one step that I can do today to lean in to that identity of my who, to lean into honoring my core value? And you do kind of the same process, just a little reverse for the non-core values. 
So perfectionism, for example, is something I have devoted a lot of my life to, and it's not (laughs) a value I want. It is definitely a non-core value. So I don't start to say like, I'm somebody who doesn't want to be perfect. I say, I'm someone who's learning how to embrace my imperfections. And what's the one tiny step I could take? Maybe that means the next email that I send to my email list, I let it fly with typos and let it be good. So that, those are the guidebook takes you through that three-part framework okay. um, so that you can start to do that process on your own. It's funny you mentioned that statement because I remember it from when we were having that conversation. I'm learning to run again. And, and I re- it struck me because it's one of the first things we learn to do. <laughs> is, yeah. is yeah. you know walk and run yeah. and and i i just i heard that and thought what does she mean she's learning to run again we know how to run but now i understand yeah yeah and it's that's, it's that's cool as i was just listening to you too it's you know everybody will always say money can't buy happiness and it's a funny thing that we're talking about finding that that happiness and that mindfulness on a podcast about money. It's it's kind of ironic. <laughs> just I thought about that too, how our, how these uh, paths collided. Yeah. So if our listeners want to to follow you more, listen to you more, hear more from you, how um, how do they do it? All of my channels pretty much are the business name, which is at Life from the Summit. So Instagram, Facebook, uh, LinkedIn, I think I'm Michelle L. Walter and Michelle is with one L, M-I-C-H-E-L-E. Uh, YouTube channel is at Life from the Summit. So, and I encourage people. I think my email is in the downloadable PDF guidebook. Feel okay. free to reach out to me if you need any further clarity around anything that we've talked about. Awesome. Yeah, make make sure I, I have followed Michelle and learning a lot about myself just from from following her, um, improving, making those small steps. I mean, in, in my business life, in my personal life in my running life, um, you know, trying to make those, those small steps. Um, you know, and if you want to hear more from us, follow the monetary mixtape. Um, I'm very active on LinkedIn. So, so chat me up there. If you have any questions or anything that we can, we can help with just, uh, Will Hoffman AIF on LinkedIn. Um, and our website hoffmanwealth.com is a great place to, uh, to get more information or if you would like to schedule a call or, um, discovery process, start our discovery process with us and see see how we can help. Please, uh, please reach out to us there. Wendy, take us home. Will, thank you. And thank you, Michelle, for joining us today. Thank you all for listening and for joining us on Monetary Mixtape. Please like, follow, and share with your friends. Until next time, I'm Wendy McConnell. Don't bounce just yet. The streetlights haven't come on. Thank you for listening to the Monetary Mixtape Podcast. If you thought this episode was dope, then click the follow button to be notified when we drop a new episode. Visit our website at hoffmanwealth.com or give us a call at 724-522-5411. And don't forget to click the follow button to be notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guest and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Hoffman Wealth Management. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service providers. 
with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning. Securities offered through LPL Financial, member FINRA SIPC. Investment advice offered through Private Advisor Group, a registered investment advisor. Private Advisor Group and Hoffman Wealth Management are separate entities from LPL Financial. All performance referenced is historical and is no guarantee of future results. All indices are unmanaged and may not be invested into directly.